There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. Welcome to episode 28 of the Digital Freemason Podcast. For roughly around June 19th-ish. We'll figure out when I'm actually going to get this up. As I said, it's... uh, a little bit wobbly on the schedule. But anyway, I'm still Scott, and I'm still going to be taking along in my excellent adventures through the world of short Masonic educational papers. Having said that, this one was a little bit longer than I normally do, uh, coming in at, uh, oh, geez, I don't know, somewhere around 16 and a half-ish minutes or so. So sit back, relax. If you're driving, for God's sake, please don't listen to this. It'll probably put you to sleep. But anyway, this piece, uh, I don't know, I found this quite some time ago. It's uh, kind of interesting. I like from the standpoint that, uh, A, it was written in 1910, and and it came from the uh, United Masters Lodge, number 167 in Auckland, New Zealand. I have no idea who the author is, but uh, it looks like it was a charge by, oh, someone in, I'll say, fairly high up the ranks, who was excited about uh, getting a provincial charter from the United Grand Lodge of England and hoping that they could uh, get their own Grand Lodge at some point. So this piece deals largely with the isolationism of Freemasonry, or I guess of the individual members' uh, selfishness, doing what it is they want to do for their own gains and how much better the whole craft and the whole world would be if everyone chipped in and started working towards the actual... uh, Intent of uh, Freemasonry and sort of the things that we had uh, that we had said that we were going to do when we uh, had gone through the three degrees. So I'll let this piece talk for itself. Uh, it's called "To What Extent Am I My Brother's Keeper?" As I said again, it's based out of uh, United Masters Lodge 167 in Auckland, New Zealand. Author, I have no idea who it is, and it uh, it's dated here January 1910. So interesting to think that this is coming up on 100 years old. To what extent am I my brother's keeper is a problem which has occupied the minds of the leading men of the world for nearly 100 years, and is today the one great question being asked in hundreds of different ways. The answer is not yet satisfactorily determined, but there is ample evidence that public opinion is rapidly destroying those most selfish forms of individualism and is recognizing the divine law which says no man liveth unto himself. There is throughout the civilized world an ever-growing acceptance of the threefold Masonic duty which is man's duty to his creator, to his neighbor, and to himself. When this threefold duty is fully understood, we shall have discovered a tremendous force back of flesh which heals, regenerates, harmonizes, and upbuilds, and which is as well known, a writer says, will ultimately bring us to a state of blessedness, which we instinctively feel is the birthright of every human being. It might, however, at this time, be interesting and profitable if we took a retrospective view of the states through which a claim of man's duty to man has already passed, and endeavor to ascertain if Freemasonry has any connection with them, or is it taking any part in the great social movement, which will ultimately result in a full recognition of the Masonic teaching that all men have sprung from the same stock and are partakers of the same nurturer. Let us look back to the year of 1215, when the great Magna Carta was signed. 
This famous document is a foundation on which British freedom has been gradually built. The freedom originally granted was enjoyed only by the nobility and free men of England. The latter portion of the people were left in a condition known as villainage, a state of existence which, in these days, we have almost lost sight of as a historical fact. For even under the great Magna Carta, men were so debased that their right to live upon the land was only on condition of their doing the meanest services for the lord of the manor, and in many cases went to the sale of the land as chattels. Macaulay tells us that some faint traces of villainage can be found as late as the days of the Stuarts. There was clearly and unmistakably one law for the rich and another law for the poor. And although some slight measures of protection were afforded to every man, it was so slight as to be of little practical value to the poorer classes. The privileges, as ordinarily granted, were, from time to time, extended by revision. But generations passed away before villainage and serfdom ceased to exist in England. Their abolition was the result of the internal forces of society, and not of legislative enactment. The great battle was for freedom. And slowly but surely, the men who had been inspired with the knowledge of their relationship to God, with all of its potentialities, and light, was penetrating the darkest in every direction. But in no section of society were the principles of universal freedom better understood than by the operative masons of England, who, at the time, must have been a large and influential body of men, judging by the enormous amount of work of the highest class performed by them in England during a few centuries. Their society was no doubt a secret organization, closely guarded and common brotherhood, one of the fundamentals of brotherhood. Social distinctions most probably were recognized, as well as a proper system of discipline. There were the mentally strong men, masters of arts and sciences, who prepared drafts or plans for the intended structure, and determined with accuracy and precision the limits or proportions of its several parts. That these men where the giant intellect and creative power is clearly demonstrated. Their plans were passed on to the brethren, the overseers, who marked out the ground and allotted the various section of the work to those brethren who were specially skilled in the use of the square, the level, and the plumb rule. Every man performed his allotted task, not as a servant to a master, but as a brother to a brother. I like to think we are justified in assuming that the members realized that the doctrine of common brotherhood adopted and practiced by this organization was so much in advance of anything contemporary with their own work that they decided to extend their membership by admitting any good and worthy citizen who would subscribe to the principles of brotherhood, although not intending to follow the occupation of an operative mason. Hence, in the memorable year of 1717, free and accepted, or speculative Freemasonry became a living force, and, on the foundations, then so well and truly laid, there is gradually being erected a glorious social edifice, the material for which, as ordered by the great architect, to be used are brotherly love, relief, and truth. The ingredients from which the cement is made to form the solid mass is a personal and daily practice of the principles of the five points of fellowship. We must, however, with shame, admit that much of the work in the construction of this Masonic edifice has been very indifferently performed. Much of the material labeled brotherly love proved to be unreliable. It could not stand the pressure of solid truth, but crumbled away and left the Masonic building 
out of plumb, an object of derision. The passerby, seeing the Masonic brand upon the material, reflects and says, See what their solid rock of truth has done to those empty professions of Masonic Brotherhood? Masonry is a hollow sham, and there is no beauty in the structure. Who could say that such a criticism was altogether unjust? We must, as Masons and honest men, admit that the Masonic structure is considerably out of square and plumb, and needs repair, as well as, in future, greater care in the work of its construction. There are, at present time, however, thousands and thousands of men trying to build honestly and faithfully upon the solid foundation of Freemasonry, and it would be well for Masonry if they, and they alone, were building. How great their disappointment must be to find numbers constantly bringing materials bearing the apparent genuine labels of brotherhood, which, instead of being composed of brotherly love, proves to be nothing more but a mixture of selfishness and personal advancement. Naturally, such material, when placed in position and put to the test, must inevitably fail. Between the years of 1717 and 1834, we cannot trace very much advancement in the direction of a public recognition of the principles of man's duty to man. Poverty was a crime. To him that had much, more was given, and to him that had little, it was taken away even that which he had. That the condition of the poor in England during the reign of the Georges form a page in British history which we gladly expunge were it possible to do so. Still, it served a purpose and ultimately led to the Poor Law of 1834, which no doubt was evidence of the recognition by the state of the duty hitherto disregarded, but the Poor Law was fundamentally wrong, because it dealt with destitution when it existed, but it did not attempt to prevent it. Although the laws of England are more humane today than they were in 1834, there is still much to be done in the direction of removing the cause which creates distress. The best way to deal with any form of evil is to remove its cause. The state now cheerfully accepts duties which would have been inconceivable to the people of 200 years ago. We cannot today comprehend what the development of human life will lead to in the future, but it must be for the betterment of the race. The progress, however, must not be forced by the dreams of the socialists or by the destructive tactics of the anarchists. The sure and safe lines are to be found in the Constitution of Freemasonry. For the past thirty years, nearly all of the leading statesmen of the British Empire have been Freemasons. The King, when Prince of Wales, recognized the value and accepted the principles of the craft, and no doubt, with the consent of Queen Victoria, became its leader. In whatever part of the world British Freemasonry flourishes, diffusing the light of the sacred law and the emblematic teachings of the square and compass, the very breath of which is brotherly love and relief and truth, there shall find a reflection in those principles, in the character and actions, those who control the affairs of the nation. Free and accepted masonry should be a solution of many of the social problems as it goes to the root of the question. Mr. Frederick Harrison, one of the world's greatest thinkers, in a very interesting article quite recently wrote, Mankind will never shake itself free until it has again a new religion, which is to be a compound of science, ethic, art, and love. Such a system at once, practical, moral, and religious, is in sight, and with it the storm clouds which today seem to menace humanity will not roll away into the abyss of ancient history. 
and will leave us with visions of a new heaven and a new earth, man's earth having growing into a real heaven, and our new heaven having become a regenerated earth. Was Mr. Harrison thinking of Freemasonry when he penned these lines? Probably not. But it is very significant that he should express the opinions that the hope and future was the recognition of the principles of the three degrees of Freemasonry. First, brotherly love, the moral teachings of the first degree. Two, the study of the arts and sciences, which are the objects of research in the third degree. And three, the ethics of life, which the third degree so forcibly illustrates. Brethren, every successful movement in Freemasonry which is a progressive and not a fixed science, must be in this direction. Brotherly love is a truth not yet fully understood, but is ever unfolding. Its limits are beyond our present powers of conception. Let us look to that that is most recent local development of Freemasonry is built upon the Masonic principles. Otherwise, the Provincial Grand Lodge of Canterbury will not accomplish its purpose. Our individual duty is to seek and obtain a more thorough knowledge of the principles of the craft and of work we each have done to perform it. The practice of, of these virtues we profess to admire, to make a daily study of the best methods of promoting happiness in others, by ministering to their necessities, soothing them in afflictions, covering their faults with a mantle of charity, to endeavor by all the strengths we possess to promote good fellowship amongst the brethren and create ourselves an atmosphere of cheerfulness and, by our example, assist others to be happy. Never listen to the slander or allow a brother's name to be reviled. Extol the virtues and hide the weakness of a brother and generally by our own lives and actions prove what masonry can do for mankind. Brethren, in this new provincial district there are nearly 2,000 masons, all vouch for as free and of good report. This number is quite sufficient to prove what masonry really is. Do you, my brother, believe in masonry as you as a refining influence on human life? And if so, are you prepared, by the help of God, to live the life of a mason in order that its principles may better be known? Will you give to your provincial grand lodge the use of these talents wherewith God has blessed you? Are you prepared for the glory of the Most High and for the uplifting of your fellow creatures to give of your substances? To say the small sum of six pence per week, a small sacrifice, surely, when we consider that we know how much we waste or spend in objects which have no value other than the passing gratification. And yet, if every mason in the provincial lodge of Canterbury would make this small personal sacrifice in, of the objects mentioned, it would yield a handsome sum of 2,600 pounds per annum. The, think what that would have accomplished in the province in, say, ten years. What a large proportion of this amount could be handed to the bond of benevolence, and how much could be done to brighten the lives of those who have been overtaken by misfortune or stricken by sickness, and yet it would be a sacrifice of less than one penny per day. This provincial Grand Lodge of Canterbury is not established simply for the purpose of conferring Masonic rank upon certain number of brethren per year. That would, in itself, would be a very unsatisfactory reason for its existence. It has been constituted for the purpose of extending the principles of Freemasonry by the collective efforts of its members, every one of whom has declared that it was in his heart's preparation for membership that it was first made. He has likewise solemnly affirmed 
that his main object in becoming a member was to render himself more extensively serviceable to his fellow man. Brethren, let us weigh well the words we have uttered and the professions of love to the order which we have from time to time expressed, and say if there are any of us who before God could say I am quite unable to spare one penny per day for the uplifting of any less fortunate brother. The Grand Lodge of New Zealand has already accomplished a great work, but it is quite impossible for an organization of 10,000 members to watch and closely guard the individual interests of all its members scattered over such a large area, and it is therefore granted to Canterbury a provincial charter in order that masonry may more be fully accomplish its purposes in this part of the dominion. It rests with us, brethren, to determine whether masonry is to become a practical thing in this territory. To a very large extent, our work will determine whether a provincial grand lodge in New Zealand is something to be desired or something to be avoided. Upon this provincial district rests the responsibility and the extending the influence of the craft, or of bringing masonry into contempt by having to write the words failure across our charter. Which shall it be, brethren? I do not like to th think the word failure will ever be written in connection with our provincial Grand Lodge work. Let us remember that success in masonry is not determined by the number of its members or by the payment of money. The successful mason is the man whose life reflects the principles of masonry. Diligence in business or in work is the road which leads to success. To act squarely with our neighbor and be true to our conscience are the tests, true tests of a true mason. Let us remember, brethren, that whilst the practice of Masonic life and rule by a few members can be true to our conscience are the tests of the true mason. Let us remember, brethren, that whilst the practice of the Masonic line and rule by a few members has a far-reaching influence, but the adoption of these principles by all the members in the new provincial district would prove mighty and irresistible force. The realization of this desired end may be nearer than most of us anticipate, and while we may be inclined to measure the success of the future to the simple truth that what is possible for one man to accomplish is equally possible for one hundred men to achieve, and if for one hundred, why not for one thousand, and so on ad infinitum. Let our own ideal be to absorb the truths of Freemasonry, in order that we may, in our lives, reflect the three emblematic lights. The consciousness of having done our duty will be our reward as well as the satisfaction of knowing that to some extent, and at all events, we have assisted Freemasonry to find the answer to the question. So that's all there, there is today for the Digital Freemason. Again, I've been your host, Scott, and I hope we've enjoyed our time together. If you need to get a hold of me, you can email me at podcast at kinggeorgelodge.com. Or I guess you could count, stop by our, our website and take a look at some of the other educational pieces that are up there. And until next time, I hope that you uh, keep the shiny side up.